You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Sudan is under an internet blackout as a military junta consolidates control over the government. Iran says a cyber attack was responsible for disrupting fuel distribution in that country. A novel loader is discovered. Operation Dark Huntor takes down a dark web contraband market. The U.S. FTC is looking into Facebook's privacy settlement. The Lockbit gang talks and it's insufferable. Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros on government internet interventions. Carol Terrio weighs in on Facebook glasses, and Halloween is another day closer. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. The London-based global internet monitoring organization NetBlocks has confirmed that internet service has been disrupted in Sudan. A military coup was mounted Monday, and fighting continues in many parts of the country. Mobile service was briefly restored yesterday afternoon, and a few texts and images about the coup emerged. But even that limited service was soon shut down. The country is now effectively under a telecommunications blackout. The U.S. Embassy in Khartoum has advised American citizens in Sudan to shelter in place. Quote, Sudanese armed forces have announced they are in control of the government. Demonstrations have been reported in Khartoum and around the country. There are unverified reports of violence against protesters. Flights are not leaving the country. End quote. It appears that the junta has taken down the Internet in the country Internet disruption has taken its place beside seizure of radio stations and printing presses in the standard playbook of the coup d'etat. We hope for the safety of all who are afflicted by the violence. According to the Washington Post and others, subsidized fuel sales at Iranian gas stations were disrupted yesterday in what the government in Tehran describes as a cyber attack. Investigation is in progress— and the incident isn't yet attributed to any particular threat actor. Observers compare the attack, if such it proves to be, with the disruption of rail services messaging earlier this summer, generally thought to have been the work of Iranian dissident hacktivists. While hacktivism may seem the likeliest explanation of the point-of-distribution outages at this time, and while fuel has for some time been a sore point in Iran— The evidence is still far too scanty for attribution. It's worth recalling that Iran has its fair share of adversaries in the region, and not just the obvious actors like Israel, but also the Sunni Arab powers of the Gulf region, 
not to mention the U.S. itself and those Western powers generally aligned with Washington. False flags remain a possibility, and of course, hacktivist groups, like terrorist organizations and activist groups generally considered, have often enough themselves been fronts for state intelligence services. The situation in Iran is still developing. Security firm ESET announced this morning its discovery of a hitherto unknown malware loader, WSLink, that runs as a server and executes Windows binaries in memory. Who's operating WSLink and what exactly it's used for remains unknown. An international dragnet made 150 arrests, taking down a dark web contraband market. Operation Dark Huntor also seized 234 kilograms of drugs, 45 guns, and more than $31.6 million in cash and virtual currencies, the Wall Street Journal reports. Arrests were made in nine countries, with the U.S. and Germany accounting for most of the callers. The successful roundup seems to have been built upon information shared in the course of another joint international investigation, notably the takedown of Dark Market back in January. At that time, German authorities arrested the principal operators of that market and took down servers in Ukraine and Moldova the group had been using. The Wall Street Journal reported this morning that the U.S. Federal Trade Commission had opened an investigation into whether Facebook's internal research indicates that the company violated its 2019 settlement of privacy concerns with the FTC. Ransomware gangs continue to represent themselves as Robin Hoods who leave important sectors alone on humanitarian grounds, but those protestations ring hollow when organizations like Schreiber Foods are hit. Wisconsin State Farmer reports that the dairy producer and distributor has been disrupted by unknown criminals and that a great quantity of milk products may well be wasted if production can't be restored quickly. One of the gangs that piously claims to avoid critical infrastructure is Lockbit. The record has interviewed a representative of the Lockbit ransomware gang, formerly a bit player, now risen to prominence as it took a top slot in September's ransomware leaderboard. The interview displays Lockbit representatives every bit as smugly self-righteous as their colleagues in Conti have recently been. When asked what the secret was to their recent market dominance, Lockbit did its best Silicon Valley unicorn imitation and replied, quote, We haven't started to conquer the market yet. Now we are at the stage of developing and improving the software. The secret is very simple, an impeccable reputation. We are the only ones who have never scammed anyone or changed our brand. People trust us. Accordingly, the more affiliates, the more attacks. The Lockbit blog is just a small fraction of the companies that refuse to pay the ransom. In the past three months, we have attacked over 700 companies. End quote. They see the Stealthbit information stealer as their competitive secret sauce, and it's clear that they see themselves primarily as a player in the C2C market. There's a lot of talk about the mutual trust that Lockbit has built with its affiliates. Quote, There is no reason not to trust the affiliates. If a person is inclined to long-term cooperation, then they will never leave us. But the most important thing is maintaining an impeccable reputation. We cannot deceive our advertisers and steal their ransom, as Avedon, Darkside, and Arrival did. End quote. The slanging of the competition is interesting, and for what it's worth, Lockbit thinks Arrival's disappearance was probably an exit scam. 
quote, Nobody really knows, but I'm sure this is a classic exit scam. The same thing happened with Avedon and Darkside. As soon as a large payment comes, the owner of this partnership program thinks about whether it's worth working further and risking his life, or is it better to exit right now and calmly spend the money for the rest of his life, end quote. But, says Lockbit, you can trust them because, quote, in our case, such a case is impossible since we fundamentally do not touch the money of our affiliates, end quote. Two refreshing bits of realism do emerge from the interview. When asked about their banning from the criminal forum exploit, Lockbit replied sensibly enough, it is not very clear how cybercriminals can prohibit certain types of cybercrime because, in fact, everyone on this forum is breaking the law. It turns out that conducting a pen test with post-payment for rich companies is prohibited, but stealing money from the bank cards of millions of individuals is allowed, end quote. That's right, this does seem to be a distinction without a difference. The other realistic comment concerning the gang's vulnerabilities to infrastructure takedowns by law enforcement, Gangland has its problems here too, quote, This is one of the most effective methods to deal with us. No one is immune from hacking infrastructure with the help of zero days. Using NSA hardware backdoors, it is possible to access any server on the planet, Therefore, the risk of being hacked is always present, End quote. Still, they say, talking basically to their criminal client audience, at the moment, we are absolutely confident in the security system for storing decryption keys and stolen data. No competitor has any analogs. In addition to this, we have several backups of stolen company data on servers in various parts of the world, as well as encrypted offline backups, held by trusted parties who receive a salary for safekeeping the data. End quote. So, more irritating and smug than truly scary, but may the cops close in on them soon. But finally, because Halloween is almost upon us... Here's something scarier, courtesy of BitGlass who say that as recently as 2019, some 38% of the Fortune 500 didn't have a chief information security officer. When they were hit with a cyber attack, the reputational damage was such that stock prices took an average of 46 days to return to their pre-disclosure levels. So happy Halloween and stay safe out there, kids. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. 
Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Facebook recently revealed their latest consumer product, and given the bad time Facebook has had in the press lately, it's not surprising that their latest offering has, at best, received mixed reviews. Our UK correspondent Carol Terrio files this report. Do you remember Google Glass? The wearable smart glasses way back in 2014, they were available to buy for a bucket full of money, really, $1,500. And the product garnered quite a bit of criticism with concerns about its price, obviously, but also about safety and privacy. Thing was, Google Glass apparently didn't do any single action especially well, and they were also pretty dorky looking. At the time, the public also weren't comfy cozy with the idea of people having clandestine computers that could record and take pictures, simply strapped to people's faces. Even some bars and restaurants barred wearers from entry if they were wearing Google Glass. But that was then and this is now. And like the space race spate that seems to be happening between Bezos and Musk, we may also be witnessing a kerfuffle when it comes to who's going to be the market leader in smart eyewear, because Facebook has now decided to join the smart eyewear party. So these smart glasses made by Facebook are actually a collaboration with Ray-Ban and are on sale for $299. You mean you can find these now at Lens Crafters and Sunglass Hut stores, and they're called Ray-Ban Stories. Weirdly, Facebook's name's not even on the glasses. Is Facebook not cool enough? Or will it make people more aware that the glasses are smart glasses, not just typical Ray-Bans, and cause more kerfuffle? So basically, you've got these Ray-Ban frames, and they feature two front-facing cameras for capturing video and photos, and they sync with a companion camera roll app called Facebook View. Yes, you need to have a Facebook account in order to use these. Now, in Facebook View, this is where clips can be edited and shared to other apps on your phone. There's a physical button on the glasses for recording, or you can say, hey, Facebook, take a video. And that way you can control these Ray-Bans hands-free. And of course, you can also use these speakers that are inside the glasses to listen to music or a podcast. And perhaps most importantly, they're not dorky like some have been in the past. <clears throat> Google. 
So I haven't tried these Facebook Ray-Ban stories glasses yet, but a reporter at The Verge did. And they wrote, after testing a pair of Ray-Ban stories for the past week, I'm impressed with the build quality and how well they work. Initial pairing was easy and syncing footage from the glasses back to the view app only took a few seconds through a Wi-Fi connection The glasses initiate. However, Mashable were not fans. They claim that this is just an expensive toy for influencers seemingly designed to make Facebook look cool again. Well, it's going to take a while for me to think that these are anywhere close to being cool. I don't like that there's a camera on the glasses. I also don't like that the camera is so small as to feel virtually camouflaged into the frame. Again, that might be a cool decision. And I guess you have to ask yourself if you think it's cool that people can take pictures of you whenever you're in a public or non-public place without your consent. I mean, they're all at it. Facebook, Google, Amazon, Snapchat. Call me cynical, but I see two main motivators here. Both money makers, data collection and targeted ad generation. I just wish I knew who out there wants to be on the receiving end of yet more targeted ads. I certainly don't. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. And joining me once again is Andrea Little Limbago. She is Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on something that I know you are tracking, and that is how various governments around the world put their finger on the scale when it comes to internet access in their uh, countries. Uh, what can you share with us today? It's something that I have been watching for a while, and I, I still, it's one of those things that I, I want to continue to elevate because there is this big movement towards privacy that we hear about a lot as far as federal privacy regulations, and that's phenomenal. We hear almost, you know, anecdotally and through narratives are what different governments across the globe are doing. And so uh, I've, I've worked on a recent research project that will continue to expand on basically quantifying, you know, how much governments are intervening for government access on one end and then individual data protection and privacy on the other. And it really is, you know, there's good news and bad news along those lines. It's not only important for, you know, those of us that are online right now, but, you know, as more and more people, you know, as the rest of the globe, you know, the next billion people come online uh, in the very near future, we need to think about what those implications are, especially as they're coming online, oftentimes in countries where the government is either impeding in access or really doing a lot of manipulation as far as what is accessible and, and what those implications may be. So I do think that's, you know, as we look ahead, as more and more folks do come online, it's going to be really important to figure out under what systems and regimes they're going to be having that internet access. Yeah, I, I saw a, an example yesterday, and, and forgive me, I don't recall exactly which country it was. Maybe you have it top of mind, but uh, it was a nation where they were saying that they're moving towards having all of their internet traffic run through one central place, and that place is run by the government, and they're going to be both analyzing and filtering what their citizens have access to. Yes, that is one of the, uh, you know, if you think about like, the tool in the tool belt of the techno dictators, one of them is basically ha- creating a man-the-middle means for all data flowing in and out, uh, and then, so they can monitor it. And, you know, it's something that Kazakhstan was, was, had explored it about three different times by requiring certificates to be on their computers. More recently, Mauritius is one in, in Africa, it's another one that basically was trying to do something very similar 
to what Kazakhstan had talked about. And we're seeing that more and more. And it's always under, under the auspices of, oh, it's for national security or it's to make sure that we're not seeing that, you know, violent content or, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, content that is disrespectful of the government, you know, mm. is, is not allowed through. But really what it does open up is just you know, enormous surveillance and mean for, you know, for manipulation, for censorship. It's really, you know, it's a means for, for information control and controlling the narrative of what goes on within that country. And so that is one of the many different trends that we're seeing leaning towards the area of government intervention. When you think about that, when those governments have access to it, you know, a lot of times those governments aren't the only ones that maintain that access. And there's a good example from earlier this summer where Cambodia was having a contact tracing app and almost like a tit for tat, um, you know, as far as relationships with China, China wanted access to that data. And so China was going to provide some carrot and in return, Cambodia would give the access that they have through their government contact tracing app and give that data abroad. And so with governments having so much access to data, is not unimaginable and it's not unprecedented at this point where other countries are going to demand access to that data as well. And so, you know, what stays, you know, what happens locally is not going to stay locally as well when it comes to that kind of access. So it's you know, very disconcerting, you know, the notion of the splinternet and all these different internets may be popping up, but absolutely, you know, one person's experience online is going to be very different depending on where they are in the world and depending on these various kinds of regulations. Now, I would say on the positive side, there are over 100 countries now that do have data privacy laws. And so... They have more, they propose them and are very close to getting enacted. And so I think that you know, we have these two trends that are going on. And then that's where we need to think about, you can, as, as a security community, what role we can play to help push it towards the, you know, push it towards the edge of, you know, individual data protection and data rights and, and security uh, and away from government access to that data. When a nation does this and, and uh, puts in place this sort of filtering and monitoring, to what degree are the citizens successful in finding workarounds? Yeah, so so it varies, and you know what's interesting is you know, even in some of their, their new cases, and if you broaden the umbrella of citizens to also being some of the the hacktivists going on, uh, do you see what's going on? I think in, in Belarus, where some of the, the government data itself was was you know, exposed and released, and so that there are ways that citizens are pushing back, uh, and just in a very significantly based on you know, where they are. Uh, and, and what they're up against, you know, what's going to work you know, in some countries, you know, probably wouldn't work in, say, Hong Kong that has a much different environment. But still, citizens are finding ways to, to work around. And that's, again, where we'll see some innovation occur. And so that's great. But it'd be great if they didn't have to innovate in those areas. They could you know, instead, you know, have, have the access, have the, uh, the data protected that they, protections that they need. But there, for sure, where you're seeing a sort of an uptick in uh, creativity and how to circumvent them. But still, at the end of the day, you know, it's very hard, you know, with minimal resources to do so. Right, right, absolutely. All right, well, interesting stuff as always. Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Haru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.